think two or three times a year, <clears throat> we have healing services in our church where people, there's stations set up around in the sanctuary and people can come and we're going to do one of those next week. Now we pray for people uh, apart from that for God to heal, but this next coming Sunday, beginning of November, we're going to give you opportunity to come and so I'm going to just invite you in the week to come to be just praying and saying, God, is there something you might want to do in my life? And just invite him to specifically speak into your life about what that might be, to be prayerfully preparing your heart for what God might want to do. Is there, you know, search my heart, O oh Lord, and see if there's any wicked way in me. And just come with an attitude of expectancy of what God can and uh, wants to do in people's lives. Let me pray with you for a moment before we look into God's word. <clears throat> Father, how grateful we are now for your word. We pray as we consider it that you would be exalted. We pray that you would speak into our lives as only you can. And so we come with just a, um, sort of an open book approach. Open uh, in the sense that we invite you to speak to us very personally and intimately. Please do this, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So six days ago on Monday, uh, I had a, a really wonderful experience that some people get to be part of and, and, and some people don't. Uh, my wife, Debbie, and I were invited by our daughter, Erin, to go with her as she uh, was looking to buy a wedding dress as she's getting married in April. And uh, it was really quite a wonderful experience. I think it's highly debatable how helpful I was. I just uh, sort of sat there with a smile on my face, trying to act like I knew what I was doing when I was hopelessly lost. And uh, at the end of the experience, after uh, a number of stores and any number of dresses, um, she did the required thing, which as she's a youth pastor up at Tofield Alliance and and all of the uh, teenage girls in her youth group had said, you have to shoot a video. So she shot the video saying, I'm saying yes to the dress. And so she'll show that to them at some point. And it was a good day. And it was a fun day. And we enjoyed our time together. It was a time where we'd been praying for and hoping for being able to uh, put that piece in the puzzle as she gets ready to get married. And you know, the word yes was exciting that day. And yes is such a good word. And we often are pleased when we hear that word yes. But then there are times in our life where we catch ourselves saying, how come God didn't say yes? How come he didn't say yes? And when we're thinking about this and when we're reacting to this, you know, there can be this whole range of emotions and maybe the word we would use to describe our reaction is frustrated. Or maybe a word even stronger than that. And you're thinking to yourself, I'm a person of faith. I know Jesus is Savior and Lord. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a biblical believer. I've prayed about whatever this particular issue is a number of times. I know biblically speaking that God can do this thing that I was praying about. In fact, deep in my heart, I, I really believe that he should do this thing, and yet he didn't, and this rattled me. 
In fact, I might go even so far as to say it rattled my faith a little bit. I've read verses like John chapter 14. We won't turn there, but just listen to these verses. Jesus is speaking, and he says, And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And we read verses like this, and then we look at these situations, and we're scratching our head thinking, I did pray in Jesus' name. As I said earlier, I know God can do this. In fact, deep in my heart, I felt that he should do this. So why didn't he? How come God didn't say yes? And in the last few weeks and in the weeks to come here in the next few weeks, we've been asking some of these questions that we find ourselves asking at times, how come dot, dot, dot? And what we've been doing is trying to just open God's word and say, what does God have to say about these things? And in all honesty, I can just be honest with you in this, that, that there's been numbers of times in my life where I've prayed about things and, and even prayed about things for years and God has said no. And I scratch my head sometimes a little bit about that. Or I've prayed for someone's salvation for a long time. And, and from all appearances, as I am observing these people, it, it actually seems like they're further away from God rather than looking to give their life to him. And I have at times saying, how come God didn't say yes? the way I thought he would. And so I want us to look for a few minutes at some biblical reasons as to why this is the case. And as I said a couple weeks ago, I'm going to say again today, it's just a bit of a disclaimer, that it's entirely possible that I won't be able to bring definitive and specific answers to every possible situation that you might think of or you might have experienced. But, but what we will find is we're going to find some some very, very broad-based biblical principles that address most all situations. So what are some reasons why God didn't say yes? Well, one of them very clearly from Scripture is just that there's this a broken relationship in our life. And I want to look at a few verses that illustrate how this impacts our prayer life and, and the things that we're coming to God about and, and what we're going to do is look at a few verses that speak to this indirectly and then one that speaks to it very directly and how it can affect our prayer life. And so just indirectly, first of all, if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book or turn your Bible on to Mark chapter 11. And Mark is the second book in the New Testament. It's one of the four biographies of the life of Jesus. It tells the, life, the story of Jesus' life. Mark is that second book. And uh, it says in Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 22, and again, this is a bit of an indirect comment on this idea that we're talking about. Jesus answered, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> have faith in God. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and do not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. 
But when, but when you stand praying, notice the context here, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Verse 25 says, when you, when you stand praying, and the context here is that of praying in the midst of an ongoing broken relationship. And so Jesus seems to be saying, uh, at the very least, indirectly and perhaps more directly, if there's a broken relationship in your life, horizontally, this can have some impact on the vertical relationship in your life. That if there's a person in your life that you're saying, I, I'm not prepared to try and do whatever I can to try and bring healing. And I understand, it says in the book of Romans, if it's possible, in other words, Paul grants the fact that it may not be possible, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. So in other words, you're sitting there and you're going, I am refusing to do what I know God is calling me to do to bring healing to this relationship. I can't really be bothered. And these verses here in Mark 11 seem to be suggesting, at least indirectly, that that will have some impact on our prayer life. That the horizontal impacts the vertical. In the book of 1 John, for example, it says you can't say you love God and hate your brother all at the same time. In Matthew chapter 5, it says if you're, you're going in, in church and you're going to present your gift at the altar as an act of worship, but just as you're about to do that, the Spirit reminds you that you have a deal with this other person. So you're, you're literally just about to present your gift and the Spirit of God just specifically reminds you, hey, Scott, you've still got a deal with so-and-so over there, and you haven't done what you can to try and bring healing to that relationship. You should act, this is so important, Scott, that you should just set your gift down right where it is and get up and just politely excuse yourself and go and try and find this person or contact this person and try and rectify the broken relationship. Then come back and give your gift, it says in Matthew 5. Our horizontal relationships can impact and do impact our vertical relationships. But then there's a passage that very directly speaks to this as well. And it's in 1 Peter, which is way over to the right in your New Testament, um, past the book of Hebrews. And you'll come to, uh, oops, went the wrong way myself. Second, 1 John there. Uh, it's 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. And so if you come to Hebrews, it's a little further to the right. If you come to 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, you've gone just a little too far. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. And it's speaking in the context of this, of the relationship between a husband and wife. And it says in verse 7, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wife. And treat them with respect as the weaker partner. So let me just stop for a second. When it talks about weaker partner here, it's not talking about um, uh, a weakness in terms of an intellectual ability or a moral ability or something like that. It simply means that generally speaking, observably, that generally speaking, men are physically stronger than women and that women are therefore 
slightly more vulnerable because of that. So this is all that Peter is saying here. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wife and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. Then he says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. So that nothing would hinder your prayers. And the thing that's interesting about this and it's a little bit complex and it's a little bit uncertain. But if you look in the, in, the, in the original languages here, it actually can have a bit of a two-way impact. That it's not just speaking about the husbands, but about the wife as well. But at the very least, it's saying, husbands, if you're not considerate of your spouse, if you're not treating your spouse with healthy respect, this will hinder your prayer life. This will hinder your prayer life. So broken relationships can be part of the deal here. Second a big idea is just that of, of ongoing sin in our life. And uh, it's just very true. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, again, is just to the right of center in your Bible. Isaiah is one of the major prophets of the Old Testament, just meaning by major meaning that they have wide-based uh, wide um, ministry and have significant impact on, on the people that they're speaking to. Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. And uh, the whole chapter, if you were to read the whole chapter, it's all about the rebellious nature of the nation of Israel. And he says to them in Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 15, he says, when you pray, spread out your hands in prayer. That's the second time we've seen that invitation was read to us from Debbie there in Psalm 28 as well. When you, when you pray, spread out your hands in prayer. And when you do this, I will hide, God says, I will hide my eyes from you. Remember the context here of the rebellious nature. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. And here's why. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Then here's some really cool news. Come now, God says. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be deviled by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Quite honestly, if there's ongoing sin in our life, where we just say God points out very specifically, there's this deal in your life, Scott, and I just stubbornly keep saying, no, I don't want to deal with it. No, I won't. I don't want you to touch that part of my life. Again, this is going to stop up God's ears from hearing and responding to my prayer. Because he loves us too much to let us carry on in that kind of approach. Thirdly, third reason is just wrong motives. And the book of James talks about this. The book, when I know we're moving around here a lot, if you're not sure where it is, just use the index of your Bible if you'd prefer. James chapter 4, and there's, you could read verses 1, uh, through at least four or five there, but we're just going to read verse three. And he says this, uh, when you ask, 
you do not receive. When you're asking in prayer, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Can, you know, can somebody say lottery for me? Um, you know, somebody prays and says, God, you know, if you just let me win the million, I'm going to give 11% or 14% to you. And then at the age of 36, I'm going to not work another day in my life and retire to Tahiti. I am guessing God will say you're praying with the wrong motive. The Pharisees did this kind of stuff a lot. We can read about this in the Gospels, the stories of Jesus' life, um, where they would, they would stand in public, Jesus would say, and they would basically, by their actions and the way they spoke and the volume with which they spoke, say, look at me and watch me. And they would pray long, showy prayers that were insincere, that were meant, Jesus said, basically to showcase themselves rather than to glorify God. And he clearly pointed out these guys that were sort of the religious elite of that day were praying with wrong motives. And I don't know about you, but again, I'm just going to be honest. There's been times in my life I've prayed some really self-centered prayers, mostly surrounding the success of the Rough Riders. But um, there's just times where we're not praying with healthy motives. And then there's times where I, I think we're sincere, but we're just not sure about our motives. You know, is my motive really pure in what I'm praying about here? And, and God, God will respond to this. It says, we could read in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2, it says, all a, way, all a man's ways seem innocent to him, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Motives are weighed for the Lord, by the Lord. And so, um, we're thinking, well, I'm pretty sure my motive is pure, but I'm not 100% sure. I just, as you often hear me say, just ask God and just say, you know, Lord Jesus, I, I think this, my heart's in the right place on this, but would you just confirm in my life, give me a sense of peace, bring another godly person in my life that I can talk to about this, that they could affirm this, or however you want to do it, just give me a sense of affirmation that my motives are in the right place for the thing that I'm praying about. And I, I just have no doubt that God will show that, yeah, this is sincere, this is motives uh, that are biblical and proper, or not so much. I don't have any doubt about that. Sometimes um, the reason... Uh, that God doesn't say yes, and we're wondering how come God didn't answer with a resounding yes, is because quite honestly, and we wouldn't really admit this typically, we don't really believe God will do it. We don't really believe that God can do it. And secret, we're thinking, I'm not sure if he's up to the task. Let's turn to the book of Mark again, Mark chapter 9, and we'll see an illustration of this. And this is a guy that you know, uh, was, was uh, just kind of starting out, and uh, his son um, is demonized. His son has been, there's been part of his life where the, the, de the demonic forces have attached themselves and have sway in his life, and this guy is deeply desperate. He's done everything that he knows to do, and it says in chapter 9, beginning in verse 21 of Mark, 
uh, Jesus, so this has been going on for some time. And Jesus, he approaches Jesus, he's really desperate, and he says, Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, dad answered. It has often thrown him into the fire and water to kill him. Then listen to, listen to the language as it shifts here a little bit. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Listen to Jesus' response. If you can, in quotation marks, Jesus says, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe help me overcome my unbelief. And so he's kind of in this shifting position. He's deeply desperate and says, you know, I don't know if you can do anything about this, Jesus, but, but if you can, it would be really nice if you would. And Jesus says, there's no if, and, or but about it. Um, this can be done. And Jesus uses this as a teaching moment, not only to instruct this guy, but ourselves as well. And he helps the guy by healing the guy, but he also helps him with his unbelief. So, listen to me just real carefully here for a few minutes. Our faith matters when we pray. It absolutely does. Many times, um, and we've already seen this, we read this in Mark chapter 11, and we're, you know, it talked about how our faith matters in Mark chapter 11. First passage we read today. We see that it matters in this passage. And there's many other times in scriptures where Jesus will say things like, it was done to them according to their faith. Um, it says in other places in the Bible, it is impossible to please God without faith. It says in, in another place, um, it, if you have just a little bit of faith, you can say to this mountain, be moved, and it will. Faith matters. You know, there's the old story of the pastor and the bar owner, and uh, the particular bar was just down the street from this church, and um, it was just, this particular bar was just a source of a lot of heartache in people's lives and in the community, and, and the pastor said to his people, we should pray about this. We've got we've to stand against this. We've got to do something about this, and so they pray about it, and, and not, not long after that, the bar is struck by lightning and burns the bar to the ground. And so the bar owner sues the, pa sues the church and sues the pastor. And uh, they, they go to court and the judge says, why are you doing this? And the bar owner says, well, they prayed and God burnt my bar down. And the pastor said, well, you know, he's kind of backing up and going, you know, well, we didn't really mean it that way. You know, after all, it was just a prayer meeting. And the judge says, this is very interesting. Here we have a bar owner who believes in the power of prayer and a pastor who doesn't. And, and, and sometimes we can be like that, can't we? You know, prayer is, is it, it almost becomes the last thing that we turn to. I've done everything else I know how to do. I've worked at this as hard as I can, and I guess, well, whatever, I guess... I should just pray about it because I think I remember reading that sometime. Now, what I am not saying here when I talk about the fact that faith matters when we pray, what I am not saying is what some of the word of faith people will try to teach you, which is, and I want to be careful what words I put in their mouth, but if I was going to summarize it, they might say something like this to you. If you have enough faith, 
basically God is compelled to do whatever you say. If you have enough faith, God basically is required to do whatever you say, whatever you say. And this used to be not that long ago called the health and wealth gospel. Before that, the name and claim it bunch. And it's the same teaching, just the terminology or the, what they call themselves because of the, the issues with what they're teaching. They changed their names and what they're called by. Something we always have to remember. That's so very important that... In fact, it's the first commandment in Exodus chapter 20. Ex you know, the first commandment it is, God never, ever, ever surrenders his position as God. Remember that. He never, ever, ever surrenders his position as God. There are no other gods. There is only one God. And he is supreme. He is in control. And his will is supreme. He's not a genie in the bottle that you just rub and manipulate and he has to do what you say. He's not some kind of a sugar daddy. And I know that they wouldn't use those analogies, but if you logically follow through, this is where you arrive at. He's not some kind of sugar daddy. He's not there to serve us. We are here to serve him. And in a way that is a bit mysterious, in a way that's really hard to put into words, if I have faith, God is not required to do it, but faith matters. And I don't exactly understand how it works, to be honest with you. But I know that it matters. Believing that he can do it, trusting that he would do it, and that he can do it. And so maybe the reason God has not said yes is because we don't really believe he can in the first place. In the book of James... Again, there towards the end of the New Testament, in James chapter 1, it says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. Anything at all. Faith matters. Then there's one last category, and this is a bit of a catch-all. Because most of these other ones I've mentioned, that there's an issue in my life or something that I've been doing wrong or an ongoing sin that I've been allowing to nest in my life. And, and, and this last one has nothing to do with any of those things. There's, there's nothing that I've done wrong. And I'll just use this terminology to describe it. Something different. Something different. Maybe God just has something different in mind. And, and it's very clear in Scripture as well that His will, because He's sovereign and all those things we just talked about, His will matters more than my will. His will matters more than my will. It says in 1 John chapter 5, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we ask of him. 
Now, I understand that the context of those verses are that of salvation. But the point is, is that when we're operating in light of his revealed will. And by the way, let me just say, you know, we, we often talk about how do I find God's will? The vast, vast, vast bulk of discovering God's will is just so clearly illustrated in Scripture very clearly illustrated in scripture and there's a few things that we're kind of going well i'm not really sure if i should pick a or b but how i get to the place of picking a or b is very clearly illustrated the vast bulk of things illustrated in scripture and so um as we're praying about something it may come but not exactly in the way we expect it may not come on the timeline but he will operate according every time to his will his will is more important than my will and the good news in all of this is he loves us way too much to give us something that's not according to his will and there's been many times in my life from when i came to christ at the age of 10 now to i'm 55 years old Many times I can think of time after time in my life where I go later in life, I'm so glad he said no to me. I was a little bit choked at the time that he said no to me about this, whatever this particular issue was. But I am so glad now that in retrospect, as I look back, that he said no. And he knows better than I know. You know the story of the life of Paul at all. Um, Paul wrote most of the New Testament. Um, when he is transformed by Christ in Acts chapter 9, he has a personal encounter with Jesus, and he has, uh, his life has changed. He, he's supernaturally healed three days later. He's baptized. He's filled with the Spirit. God uses him now that his life has been transformed uh, to be really the chief architect of the New Testament church. He's planting churches all over the then known world. He suffers for his faith over and over again. And you look at his life and you would think to yourself, if there's anyone that God would have answered all his prayers, it would be Paul. Obviously, you know. But if you read his story, if you know his story at all, you can read in 2 Corinthians 12 that there's an issue in Paul's life. And we don't know exactly what this uh, issue is. The, the Bible describes it as a thorn in his flesh. And there's been many books written about what that particular thorn is. But at the end of the day, just know we don't know. Might have been a physical issue. Might have been this. Might have been that. We don't really know what this thorn in the flesh was. But we do know this. It was a big deal. Because it says in that 2 Corinthians 12 thing that, that he prayed about it and pleaded with God about it three times. And I don't believe that it was just a one-off prayer one day on Monday, and then again on Tuesday, then again on Wednesday. I think it was more of a season of prayer. And three different seasons, he came back to God, and he begged God, and he pleaded with God, and he prayed with God over and over again to remove whatever this particular thorn was from his life. And we know if you read beginning in verse around 9 there in 2 Corinthians 12, God did not do what Paul knew he could do. He wouldn't ask God to do it if he didn't think he could do it. 
And God did not do what Paul knew he could do, and God did not do what Paul thought he should do. Instead, God did something different. And it wasn't because Paul had done something wrong. It wasn't because Paul had sin in his life. And if you read the context of that, it says, I want you to learn something that no other sort of scenario in your life is going to teach you, and that is that my grace is enough. My sustaining grace. We're not talking about uh, grace for salvation here. My sustaining grace. You're already a believer. You're already filled with the Spirit. You're going through these incredibly deep waters. I have sustaining grace that I want you to learn about in ways that no other scenario would enable. Sufficient to carry you. When Debbie and I had been... uh, We've been here 21 years. When we had been in this church just a few months, we heard about Graydon. Graydon was one of the elders, one of the leaders in our first church in Cornac, Saskatchewan. And uh, he died, dear friend of ours, he and Mary Lou, their three daughters. One time when I was pastoring in Cornac, um, it, was, it, was, it was almost like uh, one of the plagues in Egypt. There were so many grasshoppers and they were spraying. You'd approach the town and there was just this haze of spray everywhere you looked. And, and Graydon, uh, as a young guy in his early 30s, got overwhelmed by the spray, collapsed, and came this close to dying. And I remember going to the hospital and laying hands on him and praying, and God healed him, and he got better, and his life was spared. But when we had been here just a few months, like three, four months, something like that, Graydon was in an accident. And he, he survived the accident, but he was in serious condition, and he was put on the gurney, and they were rolling him through the hospital in Assiniboia. They were going to drive him up to Moose Jaw, and he waved to his little girls and to his wife, and he died later that day. Many people were praying all over the world for this guy. And it devastated, and I mean it devastated that family. I don't think any of them are really walking with Jesus to this day. I'm not sure about that, but I could be right. It rocked that church. Graydon was the leader in that church. Graydon was basically the best worship pianist I've ever seen in my life and I've seen some real good ones we could just even if he did never heard the song before Debbie would just start singing and within seven or eight words he was playing and he had a music degree and he was very gifted and I'm going to be honest with you I don't understand why God didn't heal him there's no nice little neat cliche answer to that question But as I've prayed through that over the years, in particular at the time, but I still do once in a while, God has brought me to this unmistakable conclusion that even though I don't understand, God is still good. That even though I myself was hurt by that and disappointed, and that it's okay to be honest with God, that God is still good. 
and I'm reminded through things like that and other things, the things that I believe and know about prayer. That prayer reminds me that I'm not in control. That he's the creator and I'm the created one. That prayer keeps me close to the one who is in control. That prayer reminds me that his will is more important than my will. That prayer helps me to know him more. It helps me to go deeper in my relationship with him as I'm just honest, speaking about the real nitty-gritty things of life with him about these things. It helps me remember what's really important in life, not what I just think is important. Prayer helps me be shaped by his plan. Prayer is not so much about my wants, but about his will. And when I think about Graydon and Mary Lou and their daughters, when I think about that little Cornac church, I'm reminded that God is good, even though I don't totally understand that one and a few others. And I believe he can. And I believe he is a good God. Even when I don't understand, I still believe.